Hello and welcome to Cronscast, the official podcast of SFF Chronicles, the world's largest science fiction and fantasy community. I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Christopher Bean. Today we're discussing one of the greatest myths ever told, the legend of King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table and the Holy Grail. In particular, we're going to be focusing on the 1981 John Borman film Excalibur, which ambitiously attempted to squeeze the entirety of the original 15th century text by Thomas Mallory, Les Mortes d'Arthur, into two and a half hours. It's a pretty good attempt, showing us Arthur's conception by deception, his being taken at birth by Merlin, taking the sword Excalibur from the stone and claiming his birthright as king, assembling the knights of the round table before falling into despair and ruin as the noble aspirations of the knights crumble amid accusations, betrayals, lust and hopelessness. The tale ends with a return to glory, but this time tempered with humility and wisdom and an acceptance of death, fate, the continuation of all things. John Borman's film is considered the seminal adaptation of the Arthurian myth for the screen and launched the film careers of household names such as Patrick Stewart, Kieran Hines, Liam Neeson, Gabriel Byrne, Nigel Terry and Sherry Lungi, as well as one of the finest actors of the 20th century, Nicole Williamson as Merlin. We're talking with one of Kronz's most famous sons today, the fantasy author Brian Wigmore. Brian was born among the seaside town Bognor Regis, which probably explains his fascination with places that combine ruins with water. After studying Marillion lyrics and Dungeons and Dragons at university, along with an optional module on management science, he became a chartered accountant, but then realised he was in too much danger of making a proper living and decided to try becoming a writer instead. And since then, the first two novels in his series, The Fire Stealers, have been published by Snowbooks, The Goddess Project in 2017, and its sequel, The Imperious Proof, in 2018. He has at various times been a cyclist, a runner, a free diver. He's worked in environmental cons- conservation. And all of these things have informed various aspects of his work. He now lives in the cathedral city of Chichester with, perhaps uniquely for an author who lives on his own, zero cats. So, welcome, Brian. Hello. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Good stuff. Right. Well, let's kick off. Why did you pick Excalibur? Uh, I guess because it's made a big impression on me when I first saw it. Um, the Arthurian myths are part of the foundational bedrock of a lot of fantasy. Uh, it's got some interesting themes, or themes I find interesting. Um, and I thought it wasn't too long, but <laughs> apparently <laughs> apparently, some people differ in that opinion. Who would that be? Well... A little bird tells me that one Christopher Bean was complaining about its being more than about 50 minutes. <laughs> well, South Park episodes are normally about 20 minutes. That's about as much as I can manage. Fair enough. Um, there is a lot that they cram into South Park episodes, to be fair. <laughs> that's true. Well, as Chris was saying in his introduction, there is a lot they cram into Excalibur. Um, interestingly, it's not a full adaptation of Thomas Mallory. There are quite a lot of changes that Borman has made. He's uh, merged some stuff. He's left a lot out. And he's also brought in one, I think, major thematic element, which is the wasteland and the wounded king, which isn't really in Mallory at all, um, which I thought was an interesting choice. And um, perhaps we can talk about a bit later. 
That's the Fisher King, right? That's right. Yeah, well, he's, he's, he's alternatively called the Fisher King or the Wounded King, depending on the, the many, you know, one, whichever of the many sources you're looking at. Well, maybe we could start with that because it's a strange aspect of the Arthurian myth. It doesn't really fit. As far as I understand, it wasn't, was it entirely completed by Mallory? The, the Fisher King. It's not really in Mallory at all. As, as, I mean, I've only read an abridged version of Mallory, but it doesn't really crop up in that. So the, uh, I don't know how much knowledge of the Arthurian myths we should assume people have. Is it worth a quick rundown of where Arthur comes yeah, from? Yeah, I think uh, given that we're talking about the film in particular, it's probably, and um, we gave a very pr- quick pricey in the introduction, but yeah, I think it's worth giving a quick run through of the plot. Okay, so King Arthur... Um, is mentioned by various sources in the second half of the first millennium. Um, but the, the legend first gets a more sort of complete treatment in something called The History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth, which introduces elements such as Merlin, Guinevere, and uh, I think his betrayal by Lancelot. Um, between Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was writing in the 12th century, and Thomas Mallory, who's writing in about, I think, 1450. Uh, various European poets, such as Chrétien de Troy and a man with the splendid name of Wolfram von Eschenbach, um, wrote some supplementary material, uh, a lot of which was to do with the knight Percival or Parsifal. And Chrétien de Troy, in 11 something or other, um, developed this story where of the Fisher King, where Percival goes to a castle, uh, he is sort of put in a, a banquet, um, and the lord of the castle is a, the fisher king who has been wounded in the thigh and who cannot heal. Um, Percival then witnesses a procession through the banqueting hall, which includes a grail, which in that version is not anything to do with, with Christ or a chalice, but is a serving dish, and I think a bleeding lance, and they proceed into another room. The idea is that if Percival had asked the question, basically, what's going on here, the wounded king would have been healed and the, and the land, which has fallen into, into a state of sort of famine and, and um, natural impotence, if you like, would have been restored. But through unhappy coincidence, Percival had previously been advised by another knight not to talk too much. So he fails to ask the question, and thus you know, nothing happens, and the whole Grail quest has to be completed later, although Shretien de Troy never finished his Percival story, and so we don't know what he had in mind for that. It's a very it's a strange part of the Arthurian myth, that, yeah. isn't it? it it's, there are roots of the Fisher King in Irish mythology as well. There's a story of... Do you know Bran the Blessed? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, which, well, which sounds a lot like... I always think Brian Blessed, which <laughs> maybe that's where it comes from. I, I don't do know, imagine I always... if Brian Blessed's head was cut off, it would continue to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that is the head that's been cut off. Yeah, uh, He had a, a cauldron that could restore the dead to life. Uh, Bran yes. Blessed, this was. Um, and he travelled to Ireland and gave his... Was it his daughter and the cauldron as a gift? But then he fell out of favour, so he invaded Ireland. Um, but he fell into sorrow after the after the war, 
and his head was, he, he asked his soldiers because he was wounded from the war, wasn't he poisoned in the foot by a lance? So it's always a, being lanced in the foot or lanced in the thigh, isn't it? It's always to do with the, the leg. So I suppose that's a, I mean, what do you think about the idea of propulsion, about the means to move on? It's always the leg or the foot that is wounded. Well, I've read that the idea of being wounded in the thigh would have been understood by contemporary readers as meaning the genitals. So rather than a means of propulsion, it's a, a means of generation. Mm. Hence the land also you know, falling into famine and not, and not giving any, not giving anything of itself. Okay. Um, and in, in Excalibur, this is substituted for Arthur himself. That's right, yeah. Arthur, Arthur, who's the figures of Arthur and, and the Fisher King are, are conflated in the, in the second half of the film. So is it's that, a strange... Sorry, go on, Bean. I was just going to ask, you know, uh, the earlier part about Percival walking through the hall and not asking questions, is that what they were mm. riffing off when he's at the drawbridge, at the Grail Quest? Well, it's changed in the film because... Um, in the film, Excalibur, Percival's job is to answer the question, not to ask it. Mm. And the question he is asked by a big, booming, disembodied voice, not Brian Blessed's, but yeah. that's very similar, <laughs> is um, what Who's is the secret it? of the grail? Who mm. does it serve? Um, and by answering that, he somehow acquires the grail and is then able to restore Arthur with it. So that, so that's quite different from the from the portrayal in of Percival in the Chrétien de Troyes story. But what it, the way, why it interests me is it sort of ties up with this idea that Borman introduces quite early on in Excalibur. Merlin tells Arthur, or Arthur asks Merlin, um, just after he's pulled the sword Excalibur from the stone, what does it mean to be king? And Merlin says, you are the land and the land is you. And as you thrive, the land will thrive. If you fail, the land will fail. Now, nothing really is made of that until until the whole Grail Quest thing, where Percival answers the question, what is the secret that I have lost with the answer, you and the land are one. And he then manages to restore Arthur by making Arthur understand this, by letting him drink from the Grail. Um, that's one of the most interesting aspects of the film, but also perhaps the least one of the least satisfactory. because. Um, we don't know why Arthur has lost this secret or he, when he falls into despair he tells his knights we must find what was lost we must seek the grail but the grail hasn't been mentioned until that point Yeah, we don't know why he understands that the grail has anything to do with this idea that he and the land are one well the, the fall of, of Arthur is and see, I, I view this, this film as, it's a very strange film. It's kind of a scalable film because all of the different characters, in, in a sense, they're all a different part of Arthur. They're all a different mm. part of this, of the individual. When we, when we spoke with, uh, Taddy Thompson last month and we were talking about Sandman, one of the things we mentioned was that the endless represent different facets, different aspects of an entire personality. And I kind of think the same thing is going on here with the Knights of the Round Table. And, you know, that's why there's, why it's round as well, why the table is round, because it represents a, uh, a balanced and a complete personality. So the different knights may have different, you know, they're, they're not deep, deep, complex characters. They seem to be more symbolic or representative of certain virtues or certain character traits. Yeah. 
Gawain is suspicion and accusation. Lancelot is strength and purity, but he's also, he latterly becomes betrayal and uh, Percival is truth and so on and so forth. Mm. And up to, up to the point where they're around the round table, then Arthur's achieved his, his equilibrium and glory. So he's at his height, but then it's all taken away. And then the grail becomes apparent. So I think up to that point, so psychologically speaking, the grail isn't conceptualized by Arthur because it's an unknown unknown, if you, if you yeah, want to use okay. sort of that Donald Rumsfeldian language. It's something he doesn't even know exists. And he only knows it exists once he once he loses uh, the glory that he had. So it kind of represents, it does represent a return to glory, but with wisdom and humility. I think yeah. that's, I think that's what it re- represents, but you can't know that until you've lost what you've acquired. Yeah. That's, that's my reading of it. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I, li- I like the way also that the, um, well, background reading on the film suggests that Borman was somewhat influenced by James Fraser's The Golden Bow, which, um, deals primarily with the idea of a of an ancient vegetative cult um, sur- surrounding a, a goddess who's married to a king who is sacrificed. And it's, poss- uh, it's possible that the, the Fisher King emblem in Shreti in Detroit, for example, comes from a, a similar idea, if one ever existed. Unfortunately, you know, one hasn't been proven to have existed. It might, um, that might have come from Ireland or it might have come from elsewhere. But that's... Um, I like that that theme, if you like this this tying of the of the land to the king, but it's kind of muddied because the land is also portrayed as a dragon. So, yeah, well, I think that uh, that's not uncommon. You know, the, no, the, no, but, but have, wilder, the, the dragon is an emblem of the wilderness. Like it's yeah. it's, a, it's a chimera, so it's all the different things that can come up and and snatch you and come and get you. But it's also the source of Merlin's magical power. Exactly. So it's 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 uh, it's 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 the essence of chaos, right? You know, the chaos dragon, the mm. archetypical chaos dragon. It's something that's potentially dangerous, and it can come and get you. But it's also a source of potentially great strength as well. And it's down to how you explore it and how you confront it that determines what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Okay. I wonder what you think of the the way in which. Arthur's rule fails. Um, I'll ask the questions. Thank you. <laughs> so several things happen in quick succession. <laughs> no, in no, go on, carry on. <laughs> um, so Guinevere and Lancelot. Guinevere betrays Arthur by going out into the wilderness and sleeping with Lancelot. Yeah. So Arthur loses his wife and queen. He finds and his them, best knight. He finds that and stabs Excalibur into the earth. Mm. Merlin tells us that that is that means that Excalibur has been stabbed into the heart of the dragon, spine of the dragon, sorry, oh and that seems to cause a problem with Merlin. And then Morgana manipulates Merlin into speaking the charm of making, so she can learn it. She then lies with Arthur and begets the son Mordred. Mordred is born. Arthur and his knights attend some kind of church ceremony to assuage the evil that's happening and Arthur gets struck by a bolt of lightning. The next thing we see 
the realm has turned into a wasteland. But it's not made clear which of the preceding events have actually caused that to happen. It do you think be, it should example, it, do you think it could go on? Well, it could be because he's lost his queen. It could be that Borman sort of sees Guinevere as being a representation of the goddess figure, if we're drawing on that that ancient mythology. It could be that he's lost Excalibur, because Lancelot, um, when he wakes up, says, a king without a sword, a land without a king, in horror, and then runs off. Or it could be that the, the realm turning into a wasteland is because of his incestuous relationship, or his, yeah, his, Mordred's incestuous birth, if you like. But because they all happen in such quick succession in the film, when we're left without the knowledge of what has led to what. Well, I, it's a, again, we've, it's a, I, I read the review of Excalibur by Roger Ebert from the, you know, the, the, the American film critic from who wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times. And one of his complaints was that it's a very strange story because the, the, uh, causality between events is not always evident and i think that's an example of it um but i think that's just a result of the mythological scope of the storytelling that the bones of the storytelling are not necessarily sort of the cause and effect that we would we would need to account for when we're writing a modern novel it's not the same so i think it's it may be all of the above if you're saying that the, yeah. the the land's fallen into ruin, it's not any one single thing, but it's a series of bad decisions. It's a series of betrayals, and it's a series of deceptions that have fallen that have caused the land to fall into ruin. Because maybe the land can withstand one betrayal, or maybe it can withstand uh, one deception. It's a bit. I mean, there are so many analogies and parallels with the Christ story in this, and there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens and this is one of them so when christ dies or when he's taken to trial and crucified it's not just one thing that leads up to that event it's several things he's betrayed by his friends um so by by peter he's betrayed by judas iscariot as well uh he is chosen for persecution by uh pontius pilate um he is dis- he's done nothing wrong he's or compiled on top of that he is supposed to be the ultimate ideal of of good so the ultimate representation of good so the fact that he's been persecuted or prosecuted for for a crime that he hasn't committed is even worse Uh, so it's a compilation of different things yeah i think though the trouble is that that because we can't pin on anything it stops any of them providing a proper sort of through line of cause and effect. So, for example, if it had been the loss of Excalibur, so when he, he pulls Excalibur from the stone, that makes him the king, and yeah, he's then the king, him, him and the land are one. When he loses Excalibur, that could be, that, you know, that would be quite a, a strong thematic cause for the land falling into ruin. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting, I think, that although the film is called Excalibur, we don't really know anything about the sword itself or what it can do. It doesn't really do anything. No. He calls on his well, power once to defeat Lancelot, but apart from that, oh, and apart from the fact that it can pierce Mordred's armour, which we're told 
cannot be um, pierced by any weapon forged by man. So we know it's not forged by a man. We don't know what it, who did forge it. Um, which I, yeah, I, th- I think given its importance and its sort of continuity through the film is uh, quite a strange choice. Well, I, get, I think everything in this film is symbolic. There's nothing mm. really that, that should be taken literally as far as I can see. So Excalibur doesn't have any specific properties but it has a hell of a lot of symbolic significance mm. so it's the sword that what, what is it is it merlin who says it's made to heal not to hack yeah yeah so it's made to heal not to hack i think it represents hope so the, yeah the heal that's like um the theodore roosevelt line of you know talk quietly but carry a big stick mm. that's partly what it's there for so i think when maybe when arthur is challenging Lancelot to single combat he's misusing the sword yeah that's right yeah it's not supposed to be used it certainly it, he I mean he he engages in the combat in prideful wrath doesn't mm-hmm. he so he's approaching it in bad faith anyway and that causes the sword to break not yeah. the act of combat is well it is the act of combat itself that breaks it but it was not meant for combat and it was used in combat in bad faith yeah and even his his um, well, at the start of the film, Uther's mere possession of the sword is enough to um, get the Duke of Cornwall to agree to a truce with him. Mm. Yes, exactly. So it's that it's almost like a weapon of mass destruction, I suppose. Yeah. You know, you you don't need to use it, and if you should, and if you do happen to use it, then woe betide what happens to you. Yeah. It also represents hope, as well. Yes, because it's the Merlin. Or no, it's Arthur who says, um, I've broken, when he breaks Excalibur in combat with Lancelot, he says, I've broken what could not be broken, mm. which is hope. Mm. Because he's used it to defeat the the symbol of purity and strength, Lancelot. Yeah, yes, he should have let Lancelot win. Or what Lancelot was, was meant to win, yeah. Do I think the, the story of, it's this, it feels like it's the same story being told in episodic fashion throughout the film. So the story of deception and rising to glory or, or a victory, but it's a false victory. And then um, it's degraded into a dis- despair or ruin and then revitalization into a true victory. And it mm. seems to be that's, that's the case in microcosm. So in each of the episodic elements of the film, but it's also the overarching narrative of the film as well. Yeah. Well, what's going back to Roger Ebert's comment about sort of like a lack of continuity? I don't think that's actually the case in the first half of the film. I think there is quite strong continuity in, in modern plot terms. It's just really the the way in which uh, when the land falls into ruin. As you say, there are you know, several possible explanations, but none of them are really explored. The only thing early on, I think, which raises a bit of a question is why Sir Gawain accuses Guinevere of inciting Lancelot to um, to desire or desiring Lancelot when he knows that that will cause him to to meet Lancelot in trial by combat which he can't win because you know Lancelot is the best because knight. Lancelot is the best knight yeah I mean we, we know that um, we see Morgana whispering things into his ear but unless she's actually enchanted him which which doesn't seem to be the case from what we see it seems to be a bit of a 
a strange choice on his part. I, I think the round table scene is, I think it's my favourite scene in the film, actually. Um, it, it represents Arthur at the height of his glory. Mm. And when just he's about the chief. Yeah, yeah, just the you know the the just before the just before the darkness creeps in and and everything goes wrong, and um, you remember I said about the knights representing different elements of a personality mm. that that scene is almost like an individual having a conversation in their own head, yeah, and putting forward the different the different. Uh, ways of, of interpreting things that are happening. So the, it's, it's Arthur, in a sense, who's questioning everything that's, that's around them. So he's achieved everything, but he's questioning the relationship between his wife and uh, his best friend, his best knight. He's, he's playing, he's, he's going through, uh, mulling over whether it's better to voice the accusation and destroy everything or whether it's better to keep it quiet. And it's at this point when, uh, ostensibly, they're at their greatest strength. Arthur's at his greatest strength, but they're also bickering because they're also argue, they're also asking Merlin, "What's the greatest quality in a knight, Merlin? Is yeah. it strength? Is it purity?" Uh, which, which I think, is also you know because they're also well, I'm the pure one, I'm the strong one, I'm the the the, uh, the true one, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They all want to know what's the best quality. And Merlin gives the correct answer, which is something to do with alloys and metals. And he witters on about alchemy. And they say, ah, we don't want to hear that. That's rubbish, rubbish. Just tell us the answer. So he says, truth. Truth mm. is, the, is the correct answer. Truth is the, is the thing that will guide you. Um, Whenever a man lies, he murders a part of the world. He murders a part of the world. That's it. And so I think that that scene is Arthur wrestling with himself as much as the, the knights are squabbling with each other. Even yeah. if it is in partly in jest, I think that's what's going on. We mustn't forget, though, of course, that the downfall, his downfall, is uh, brought about by Morgana's hatred of him, and that hatred is inspired by what happened to her mother. In other words, the manner in which Arthur is conceived. Mm. So Arthur's conception had in itself the root of his downfall, which I think is quite interesting. <coughs> What? Um, how do you mean? So the, the the fact that he's come from inauspicious beginnings is sort of putting a sign over him. Well, I think so. Look, maybe maybe just Morgana's... maybe just go through the uh, the, the initial plot. Okay, you know, the, the, the the origins of the story with Uther Pendragon. So Uther Pendragon has uh, desires to be the overlord of all Britain, and. The only person holding out at the beginning of the film is the Duke of Cornwall. Um, they have a, a battle. Uther acquires the sword Excalibur from Merlin, shows it to the Duke of Cornwall, who is so impressed with it, he agrees to a truce and invites Uther to his castle for a feast. Uh, during this feast, the Duke of Cornwall gets his wife to dance for them, wishing to show her off, uh, which back backfires spectacularly because it inflames Uther to um, lust so extreme that he attacks the castle. Um, he then agrees with Merlin that Merlin will magic Uther into the semblance of the Duke of Cornwall so that he can then lie with the grain, the Duke of Cornwall's wife. And that is how Arthur is conceived. But Morgana witnesses this. Um, 
And then so when Morgana being born, Arthur's half sister, who's already yeah. a girl. Yeah. Um, and then when Arthur is born, Merlin comes and takes him away uh, to have him raised by a foster family. Um, Uther is killed. Which is Clive Swift. Foster family, Clive, Clive Swift, yes. Uh, Clive Swift hires Bouquet's husband mm. in keeping up appearances with a rather posh English accent and yet somehow has raised a foster son. He'd be a good accent. foster dad, I think, Clive Swift. Sorry? He'd be raised, a good foster a fo- dad. Raised a foster son. Yeah, but I think Clive Swift would be a good foster dad. Oh, he'd be a brilliant foster dad. Yeah, I'm just wondering why, why Nigel Terry's Arthur has an Irish accent when he's been raised by a family with an English one. It, well, he was fathered by Gabriel Byrne, so I suppose there you go. That's why. They, that's why. Well, they should have all, if they were if they were following that logic, they should have been shouting their heads off every time they opened their mouths because that's all everybody did at the beginning was just shout their heads off. They they did, yeah, uh, yeah. That's I noticed that as well. It's weird, isn't it? because yeah. um, it, it tones yeah. down. But at the beginning, I'm like, oh, I feel a little bit attacked. <laughs> well, they're all they're all complete thugs at the beginning. Yeah. I think that's I think that's deliberate. Um, I think it's meant to show pre-civilized that, thought. Yeah, Arthur Arthur's reign civilizes everybody. Yeah. Um, you also notice that the the art all the armor at the beginning is much duller. It's sort of like a yeah. metal grey. And when Lancelot when Lancelot turns up, his bright shiny armor is in fact is is completely the exception. But then everyone else seems to adopt it. That's where my queer reading comes from. The his Lancelot shiny ar- armor. <laughs> Go ahead with a quick. Come on, you got to spill the beans now. Well, no, it's not a queer reading so much as a. I just thought it was a little. It, it, these days, it, it, admit it. It is these days. You know, you you can't watch that kind of scene without thinking of either adamant ant rap or <laughs> or um or you know thinking about the implications of this very beautiful man. With, Did uh, Ant Rap come out before Excalibur? No, afterward. Well, the one with Diana oh, Dawes. Okay. Diana Dawes is so, quite... so Borman wouldn't have been influenced by Ant Rap. I think we should ask our expert Brian. What? <laughs> Brian, Brian, Brian will know about Ant Rap probably more. Um, whether it's based on Excalibur or had any relevance, but I just thought there's there's just I could just think about those ac- academic discussions people trip themselves up over having saying oh and he kissed the end of his sword and it's a a phallic symbol and all this kind of stuff and it was just I was just entertaining myself because by that point I was like I think you know I was I was watching it for the image rather than the story because as Brian said it's uh it's not particularly that clear but I think if I can just go back onto that, actually, one of the, one of the reasons I think you have to take into account is John Borman as a filmmaker, and also the fact that there might be a conceit to the film that we already know all this. You know, people, it's our heritage, so therefore we know a lot about King Arthur. I mean, I didn't, obviously, but um, and and but so, you knew of it though. Yeah, you yeah, knew I knew of it. But I, I, I mean, I learnt from this, for example, that um, Uther is different from Arthur. I just thought it was a different spelling. I've grown up thinking Uther was a different spelling of Arthur. Oh, right. so, yeah, there's lots of things like that. And I thought Nimue, although it's, you know, isn't mentioned in the film, I thought Nimue and Morgan Le Fay were the same, per- or Morgana were the same person. Well, so, there is, yeah, there is a lot of messing about that Borman has done here. For example, in the original, in Thomas Mallory, um, it's not Morgana that Arthur has an incestuous night with it and, and begetting Mordred. It's actually her sister, Morgaus. So he's, he's done quite a lot of this stuff. 
I, I mean, I, I agree. Actually, Arthur, sorry, Excalibur was the first time, even though I watched it probably when I was 19 or 20, it was the first time I'd come across a coherent you know, account of, um, of the Arthurian legends from Arthur's conception to his death. I didn't really know what the story was. I, I knew bits of it. I knew some of the characters from it. Um, I think it. I think it does it pretty well. Yeah, I think it does it pretty well. Yeah, it's also it's very operatic. It also, you get a sense of it. Even you might not have the you know the nuts and bolts down in terms of logic and understanding what's going on from scene to scene. But I'm not a particularly intelligent you know observer of those kind of things, and I understood what was going on. I think yeah. you know the yes, there is. I think it's also because it's such a long film. There's those bits like where suddenly the world, uh, the country is you know in a decline. Um, all those and, and the mention of the Grail could have cut on the edit, been on the edit floor because this film was already too long. You know those things which would have forced. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't know what was left out or what the extended cut would have been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dan, Dan just mentioned the word operatic, which gives me a, a good lead into the the musical score. Can't which, well, I think before, I mean, let's before we go into the music, just ge- a general point on. Actually, we haven't, we haven't dealt with Morgana yet, have we? We, we started this thing about... Oh, yeah, we've well, gone on a tangent. We Should we do Morgana or the opera first? Oh, I don't right, know. okay, let's go back to Morgana. So, so, yeah, go on then. Yeah, so Morgana witnesses her mother's rape by Uther in the guise of her father and then harbours a hatred of particularly Merlin, I think, for having brought this around. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do Merlin's image any favours that he's complicit in this. And she, she associates her Merlin with Arthur... And when she sees that Guinevere has some kind of attraction to Lancelot, she sees how can you, how she can use that to bring down the kingdom. And you know, after that, she she decides to beget a son to take over from Arthur and rule the kingdom herself. That's all I was saying, really, that Arthur's conception, because it was witnessed by Morgana, his half-sister, has, has in it the seeds of his own destruction. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting that you say she sees Merlin's part in the deception and she blames Merlin. Mm. Really, Merlin's just a tool, isn't he? I mean, he's... Oh, no, I don't think so. I think he's... He's about the whole thing. He's representative of, of the old gods, but the, the people, the characters in the story can use the old magic or the spirits of the woods and the streams, as he, as he puts it, for their different ends. So it's Uther's wish... For him to use the magic on himself, but he doesn't pay his price yes. for that. He he tells you that before that he comes and goes when he pleases. There are other worlds than these, or something. He says, uh, "Yeah, towards the end, yeah." But um, Uther, I think Merlin's first appearance. Uther demands of him, "Where have you been? I've been calling you." And Merlin says, "Yeah, I've been walking my own way since the dawn of time. I come and go at my own choosing, or something like that." I I think he he agrees to to Uther's plan you, before he agrees to Uther's plan you see him looking up the castle looking up at the castle the Duke of Cornwall's castle and he says something like he just says the the name Igraine but you can tell that he's thinking that she would be the mother for Arthur so he then agrees to Uther's scheme because it will bring about what he wants to happen but why he wants to happen why he particularly wants it to happen isn't quite clear because he then leaves Arthur at the moment just before the kingdom is destroyed. So he doesn't even know, I mean, it's, it's a question as to how Merlin claims to be able to see the future, but it's uh, either sees it fairly unclearly or he has some quite 
of okay. your motivations. There's a, I think that there's a line that he says when he's talking to Morgana, when Morgana is a grown woman and is played by Helen Mirren. And he says, I think, is it at the wedding scene? It might be at the wedding scene. And they're at the back and she's saying, teach me the, mm. teach me the, the spells and the, uh, and the, uh, the laments and all of that. And he says, um, the one God drives out the many. Yeah. The spirits of wood and stream. The spirits of the wood and stream. Yeah. So the, so the old gods, the multitude of gods or the multiplicity of gods is driven out by the one God specifically meaning the Christian God. But I was, I've got back to the, so go, let's go back to the Christian reading of this in the old Testament. God is at the beginning. So right at the beginning of Genesis, he's, if you read the Bible as a piece of literature, and God as a character, then in Genesis, he's one of the main characters. And in Exodus, he's also one of the main characters. But by that point, the humans are doing a little bit more and they're showing a bit of agency in modern Mm. language. And then as the Old Testament goes on and on, God sort of recedes. He comes and then he's a bit like Merlin. He comes and goes as he pleases. He interferes in Job and Isaiah and bits and pieces here and there. But really, it's about humanity awakening and learning to take master itself in, and be in control of its own destiny. And I think something similar is going on here. Because by the time you get to the New Testament, you have divinity personified into the form of a man, which is Christ. And then Christ dies. And the rest of the New Testament is all about human activity and how they've what they've learned and them going out into the world, which is, you know, acts of apostles, Paul, Corinthians, et cetera, et cetera, Romans, uh, until you get to revelation and it all gets which weird all and, and dream and, and weird and dreamlike again. Yeah. yeah you know. No, that's true. And, and Merlin says, Merlin says a couple of times that once with Morgana and once with Arthur at the end, he says his time is over. It's now a time of men to, to mm. make their own decisions. Yeah. And, and that's the story of humanity. I think mm. is what's yeah. going on. And he, he's, you know, he actually confesses that he has meddled in the affairs of, of men for too long. Yeah. So, it's yeah, also, I mean, it's also, I think, the story of the individual. As the individual is a, is a baby or is an infant and is sort of in the world, in the divine realm, if you like. And sort of children do have that divine spark about them. But as they grow into their life, then they've also got to, they've got to figure out how to master their own destiny. And as you become older, you know, after that sort of divine presence dies, let's say, then the rest of the story is about the acts of the apostles, you know, which, which is yourself, mm. the way that you carry yourself into the rest of the world. So it's, I guess like this sort of meta story that works episodically, but works for all of humanity, works for the, the, the country of England in this sense, but also at the level of the individual as well. Mm. I've silenced everybody. Should we talk about the opera then? Opera, yeah. To the opera. Well, can I just say, Mor- Morgaus is also the name of a sea monster in where is it? Wales? Is, is it? it? Yeah, there's like you know, like a Loch Ness monster kind of thing called. Oh no, it's not. I'm thinking of Morgwar M O R G W A R or something. No, I'm conflating. Sorry. Wait a bit. It's all. Okay. It all has the same root, doesn't it? More, which yeah. must come from death. 
Mm, no, that's no Dan. Latin, wouldn't it? And these names are originally Welsh. <laughs> Shush you, Billy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let me find... Well, actually, it's not relevant. So you two talk about Wagner and Carmina Barana, and I will look up Morgwall. Okay, yes. you do that. Yes. So, yes, the, the, when I saw the film, especially on the big screen at a university lecture theatre, the, the music, um, I think, was one of the most striking things about it. I heard... Oh, Fortuna from Carmine Burana before only in a TV ad for Old Spice Aftershave. But um, <laughs> I had, but bef- had no... this was before Excalibur. Yeah, it was. I think it was the seventies. Wow. Yeah, guy, guy surfing. I think you can find it on YouTube. But they used it um, in The Omen, which was before, isn't it? Oh, did they? Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah, of course yeah, they did. Well yeah, yeah, of course they did. I hadn't, I hadn't come across any Wagner before, apart from Ride of the Valkyries, which I don't like. Um, but I thought there were three. There were three pieces of, of Wagner's music used in this film. Some of them very on the nose. So um, a lot of uh, I, I think. Well, I think that's that's forgivable. Oh, it is forgivable. Because... I think a brilliant. Yeah. So so the prelude to Percival he uses for the <coughs> Perse- for when Percival is is interacting with the Grail, if you like. Yeah. Um, the oh, the overture uh, to Tristan and Isolde. Yeah, that's right. For 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 um, for Lancelot's superbly used yeah. and. Um, perhaps less relevant, uh, Siegfried's Funeral March from Twilight of the Gods, which is superb piece of music. And he's Borman's done this before in um, when he directed Zardoz uh, several years previously. He used um, the Allegretto from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony uh, to good effect. I understand. I haven't watched it myself, so he's obviously got a, a feel for what piece of classical music would work in in his films. It's it's a shame. I don't think that that sort of thing would fly in a in a mainstream Hollywood movie these days. I mean, there's a a certain level of assumption that Borman has that the people watching his films are going to have a, you know, they're going to meet the necessary threshold of understanding of our culture, you know, Beethoven. I don't don't know that it's necessary to know what to be able to recognise the music he was using. Like I say, I didn't. Um, I don't think it's any different, really. It's just possibly a cheap way of getting. I mean, most most film soundtracks have a have a sort of classical instruments and ways of construction. Yeah, um, but the thematic resonance of the music yeah, was that's just, used in Excalibur just, is rather than having yeah. rather than having music uh, written for the film, he used stuff that um, already existed, which he which he thought fitted when it does superbly. I think. Mm. There is well, it does have some original score by yeah, Trevor Jones. That's, that's quite. That's the, the original music is quite often sort of a bit weird and spooky for the. Um, oh, apart from that, the, sort of like the, the use of opera music, operatic music, I think is 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 it's uh, it's apt because opera. When you're telling a story in the opera, you can only really tell the gist of the story. Again, it's all yeah. it's all done in symbols because so, you can't. Yeah. You can't tell a story going down in. You can't have a, a complex plot in an opera. No, or you can have a characters happy, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, you yeah. just yeah, have these symbols thrown about, and that's it. You get the gist of yeah. the story. Excalibur is quite an operatic-looking film, I think, and the visuals yeah, are the strongest element. And Nicole Williamson's performance, of course, which makes it really. Yeah, yeah. So he's like Noel Coward as Merlin, basically. He is fantastic. I, um, yeah, he is. He is fantastic. He and is... nothing, nothing like any any idea of Merlin I'd had before I saw that. In fact, I think a lot of people encountering it for the first time probably find it a bit weird. 
as I did. My idea of Merlin, it wasn't the sword in the stone Disney version, but it was probably something like Gandalf. Yeah. Here we have a guy with a, a polished metal skull cap um, who talks in this almost comical delivery, but it's not really. It really, it's. Um, I think it's his performance. It's just knowing, isn't it? It's witty. It's yeah. Not comical. Sorry. Yeah. There's a change. There's a change in his character towards after the um, say midpoint where he's uh, there's you know a few pratfalls banging his head, falling mm, over. He falls in the water. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he becomes a bit more sort of mad like Yoda rather than, you know, this sort of oracle that he was at the beginning. But it's funny you mention that was the first depiction of Merlin I'd ever seen. I mean, I saw this oh, really? film when I was far too young to see it. Um, and so for me, that is what Merlin looks like, a bit okay. like Merciless the Ming, you know, Ming the Merciless yeah. or whatever with that that thing but then also i was reading on i think it's on the wiki article they were saying that they'd started off producing it as lord of the rings so maybe yeah that's an interesting story yeah yeah maybe so, there was so, conflation there yeah so so some apparently some of the the set designs and so on were, were conceived um being used in the lord of the rings film so originally borman was was shopping this this excalibur treatment around since the late 60s and he took it to united artists and they said, no, that's going to be far too expensive for us to produce. So, so have a go at Lord of the Rings instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, which, and, which is, yeah, incredible, really. But given that um, Excalibur cost 11 million to produce in 1980 and Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings cost 300 million to produce 20 years later. So probably adjusting for inflation is still about 10 times the amount. So um, Borman... He had a you know, he he tried to develop Lord of the Rings and he even corresponded with Tolkien about it, but uh, eventually he couldn't get it to work. But uh, apparently some of the some of the concepts he had carried over into the his final ex, ex, Excalibur treatment. I mean, thematically, there's a lot of resonance again, mm. isn't there, with with the wounded land and the king in exile and the, the chosen one. Yeah, you know, and and Gandalf is a, a Merlin avatar. There's a lot lot of stuff that you can just pick up and plop in Excalibur. Yeah, actually, also Merlin had, has a line at one point, follow your nose, which was um, then incorporated, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, incorporated into both Peter Jackson's film and the, late, and the recent Rings of Power series. Yes, yes, it was, wasn't it? That was the reveal. Hmm. That's right. Okay, is there anything else we need to talk about on Excalibur? Yes. We covered all- oh, yeah, there is, isn't there? Mm. I'm just trying to get involved. I don't know what it is. <laughs> no sorry well I, i've got my my notes were i re some you know i like i have a lot of different sets of tarot cards so there was a lot of especially it was nice to see i i didn't i haven't done my due diligence so i can't tell you where it was filmed but there was a lot of um beautiful use uh, use of what i assume is our the uk countryside that you well, don't County Wicklow in Ireland, apparently, most of it was filmed. Okay, because you, you don't normally see that in... I don't know, I was just thinking, there, te- there, sen- there tends to be a grandiose um, element of when, when, when we're meant to see what Britain was or what England was um, in, in modern filmmaking. But in that, there was something very... I don't know, it reminded me of Kroll or something very... Not quaint, but suppose rustic, but also very... Very green. I don't know. I'm just 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 very sort of parochial, um, rather than these massive 
you know, uh, vistas and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, there's a lot of use of, of woods and yeah, um, what's called Celtic and meadows forest. and um, yeah, yeah. One one interesting point we haven't mentioned was that the its sense of place is non-existent. Apart from Cornwall, no. Whereas Mallory mentions loads of places like London, Dover, Canterbury, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the film Excalibur mentions no place whatever apart from Cornwall. It's not even mentioned as being Britain. Mm. Um, and that's why they can get away with so many accents at the beginning. Possibly, <laughs> yeah. But it's a universal story. You know, yeah, it can be yeah I, I, I think he wanted as to set it in the world of myth rather than any rather than doing yeah. a sort of pseudo history. I don't think even Avalon is mentioned at the end. No, no. Well, it's, it's if a, you know you just, the story, then you can sort of that yeah. inferred, but otherwise, yeah, it's certainly yeah, it's not explicit. To some extent, he does sort of expect a, some knowledge, but on the other hand, if it's not there, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that was my favourite part of the film, is those scenes at the end were just beautiful, mm. especially the boat sailing off with the three, you know, they have their hands up. Yeah. That that pose and then the 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 sky with its tiny shaft of light shining on the um on the um boat is the, the it's just absolutely wonderful i really mm. like that yeah. um and i think you know going back to what we're saying about the filmmaker maybe dropping the ball sometimes on plot at the expense of beautiful things you know that's a prime example of something that he's spent a lot of time on there's a lot of time being spent on those shots thinking yeah. about them uh, they tell so much without, you know, telling anything really. You don't say you don't. I mean, they you, don't mention Avalon. No, they don't. No. You could probably tell a lot of this story just in images. Mm. Yeah, I think if so. you took a yeah. lot of the dialogue away, you could probably figure out what's going on. Yeah, the images are definitely. It's almost like a dream logic, isn't it? The film. Mm. Right. Shall we wrap it up for there, uh, for, for Excalibur? Well, if we're not going to talk about the bubble wrap wedding, then yeah. Oh, yeah, the bubble wrap wedding and the animal noises. Oh, the animal noise, yeah, the, the animal, animal noise. And we haven't talked about a, a Monty Python comparison because that was... Oh, God, yes. They, they complement <laughs> each other so well. I they think. really do. And, I, I, you know, this is, to my shame, there are certain films that I should have watched or, or books I should have read, you know, a lot earlier as a genre fan than I ha ever have. Um I only watched the Holy Grail, Monty Python's Holy Grail, at some point last year for the first time ever. No. Yeah, I know. Really? I'd seen Jabberwocky, and I'd seen The Life of Brian and uh, The Meaning of Life, but I'd never seen um, the Holy Grail because of my sort of bias against sort of this kind of stuff. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Sort of thing, huh? To, what? Say, say no to this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's not, it, or at least there was killings in it. I, I was happy then, but um, just I think at the beginning, particularly, I was like, I was laughing because the shout, the shouting, and the the oh, what was it I was saying before when um, yeah, when when um, Arthur is very young, and they're saying, let the boy try, let the boy try. <laughs> and it's just like, let the boy try, yes, let the boy try, let the boy try. Apparently, almost all the dialogue was overdubbed. Oh, really? Which might account for its slightly odd quality. Well, definitely with Merlin it does, because sometimes I was thinking he's not even moving his lips. Yeah, maybe that's it, yeah. But all the, yeah, like you say, all the shouting from people, it does. I think it makes more sense that they're shouting it into a microphone after they, you know, in a studio after they've, after they've um, shot the actual film. 
I just, I, it just really was reminiscent of that scene where they're shouting, and not the French people on the battlements, but they're shouting, <laughs> <laughs> they're shouting, and it just really, I was just laughing a lot at the beginning, and then it sort of gets much more serious. It, 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 it does have an innocence at the beginning which is lost quite quickly. I think it does take uh, the film Excalibur does take itself very seriously. I don't think that's to its discredit necessarily, but it does mean that when you watch the Monty Python's Holy Grail afterwards, it's sort of it's very refreshing change. Mm. Yeah, it's, it cleanses the palate, doesn't mm. it, a little bit. Anyway, yeah, let's wrap it up there for part one, and we'll join Brian Wigmore a little bit later on in the show. Hello, and welcome to Mars Radio Fourteen the third best radio station in the Martian Space Force, which, by the way, is the best space force in the solar system. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about dragons. So we sent Lieutenant Bungalow back to a round table in 12th century Britain. Can you hear me, Bungalow? Just about half milk carton. It's pitch dark, so you have to speak up. I didn't realize there were no streetlights in the olden days. Jeez. Oh, 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 wait. Here comes a wobbly one. It's, uh, uh hang on. It's, it's, ah, man, it's wobbling all over the place. It's a, it's a fat guy on a horse. Only with a burning torch strapped to the saddle. Why has he a torch attached to his saddle? Little freaking idea, half milk carton. Here, wait. I'll ask him. Excuse me, sir. Yeah, do you mind answering a few questions about dragons? Sir Arthur Pendragon to you. And no, I do not. I do not at all. Especially if you ask me about dragons. In fact, my name means dragon's head. I mean, is, is that a euphemism? No, I don't think so. Well, I hope not. What do you think? I think it'd be a fine name for an awful dang zomp, or like a human rock music group. Uh, a space rocket, that'd be good. Wait, I think there's already one of those. What? Who has seen fit to use my title? I shall cut them down. Relax, Tinkerbell. It happens in the future. My name is Lieutenant Bungalow of the Martian Space Force, and they've named the style of one-story house after me. It's just something they do. They're freaking idiots. I don't know. Anyway, so it was Elon Musk, and he only named a dragon to prove drugs had no effect on him. Uh, pardon me? You know, you know, Arthur, Buff, Magic Dragon, Song, Peter, Paul, and Mary. What? You know, Puff. He was from Ali. He used to hang around with Jackie Paper. Kings would bow to the pair of them. I bow to no man, sir. Dead or alive. Well, I mean, what about Sir Lancelot? What about him? Didn't he, you know, kill you? Uh, I, I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. I'm fairly sure he did. In the future, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably why you don't remember it. You humans. <laughs> hmm. I'll have to have a word with Merlin. I've to ask him about this torch strapped to my saddle anyway. It's supposed to guide me anywhere in the kingdom, but I've no clue where I am, and it's a fire hazard. I was wondering about that. Did you know how it's supposed to work? No, but Merlin's good at magic. He called this saddle light navigation. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. So you know magicians? Do you know any magician who is friendly with dragons? Certainly. And where does Sir Tanley live? Not Sir Tanley, certainly. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, right, uh, sorry. So where does he live? Camelot. Hey, I'm, do you want a lift? I could probably fit your horse into the rocket. The horse can stay here. It's a nightmare. Okay, I have milk carton. I don't know if you heard that, but I'm off to Camelot with Arthur. Uh, well, actually, wait. I realized I forgot my lunch. So I gotta swing by the studio first to pick it up. I'll give you a shot when I arrive. Thanks, Bungalow. Safe travels. Hello. I'm Damaris Brown, and this is The Judge's Corner, where I usually consider legal matters we as authors need to know about, or which we might use in our stories. This month, though, I'm returning to my occasional series, looking at aspects of the law which can be found in the science fiction and fantasy we read and watch. And today, I'm delving into the film discussed in this month's podcast, John Borman's Excalibur. The setting for this story of King Arthur and his knights is, of course, wholly ahistorical. Whoever Arthur may have been originally, he certainly wasn't riding around in the shining plate armour of the late Middle Ages, nor building shining stone castles in the middle of nowhere. Nonetheless, in Excalibur's amalgam of legend, myth, magic, and seriously anachronistic dresses, there are glimpses of historical English legal concepts, and the most notable being trial by combat. This arcane law was front and centre in film circles just a couple of years ago, as a result of Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, but it appeared some 40 years earlier in Excalibur when Lancelot battles Gawain to determine the guilt or innocence of Guinevere. It's important to understand that trial by combat wasn't simply a life-or-death fight between two men, at least not when it reached England with the Norman Conquest, by which time it had been practised on the continent for some 500 years. It was in fact a formal judicial process, bound about by rules and procedures, and founded on the same principle as the other trials by ordeal which had emerged in Anglo-Saxon England, such as an accused having to thrust his hand into boiling water, namely that what resulted would be the judgment of God, since he would ensure guilt was punished and innocence vindicated. This element of religious faith is retained in Excalibur, but the principle itself is distorted, so it's not a question of the Almighty intervening in a trial, producing a miracle if necessary, for when Arthur decrees Lancelot and Gawain should fight, he says, The champions shall meet, and the truth shall be known, for by the law of God no knight who is false can win in combat with one who is true. In view of the bloodshed we've already seen by this point, and all that is to come as Morgana and Mordred rise in power, this assertion seems somewhat naive, to say the least. And that's before lawyers start arguing about what it means for a knight to be true. If Gawain sincerely believes Guinevere is guilty, how is he being false? Because trials by ordeal were faith-based, they were originally overseen by a priest, someone missing from the scene in Excalibur, though we do see Lancelot praying beforehand, which was also usual, at least initially, with both parties spending up to three days in prayerful vigil. Yet even as early as the 9th century, there was theological disquiet over trial by combat, since it was seen as tempting God, tempting in the sense of testing him, requiring him to prove his power to ensure the right person won, something Pope Nicholas I decreed was blasphemous. But it wasn't until 1215 that the Fourth Lateran Council finally pronounced against such trials, ending all clerical oversight of them. 
yet despite its misgivings, the church wasn't above hiring champions to fight for it in trials regarding property disputes. With the growing sophistication of state judicial systems, religious opposition to judicial duels was echoed by legal criticism. An English jurist in the late 12th century wrote that trial by jury was to be preferred since justice was seldom arrived at by battle. And as time progressed, trial by combat was seen as befouling everyone involved, including the judges who perforce had to allow it if the requisite conditions were met. Secular authorities, and undoubtedly their subjects and citizens, also had doubts about the justice involved in trial by combat and its efficacy in discovering truth, and one 8th century ruler made provision for what should happen if the defeated combatant were later found to be innocent. I'm not sure if this related only to civil matters, though, or if it was in order to make provision for the man's family, because as far as criminal cases were concerned, the loser was likely to be long dead, either killed in combat or executed afterwards. The judicial duel seems to have been most popular and widely used in France, particularly among the nobility. But even here from the late 12th century, the kings made attempts to restrict it. And in 1258, it was banned altogether, though barely 50 years later, it was formally reinstated for criminal trials and in the meantime seems to have continued much as before and did so until the 16th century. In England too, there were attempts to curtail its use, with exemptions being granted to some people, such as old or disabled men. Clergymen were exempt from 1176, the citizens of London early in the 12th century, and thereafter other towns and cities sought to purchase charters of exemption for their own people. As the crown drew more power to itself and its royal courts, legal duels faded away, and by the 1460s, when Thomas Mallory was writing Le Mort d'Arthur, on which Excalibur is based, judicial trial by combat was largely at an end, though it was not formally abolished until 1819. Duels continued to be fought in the 18th and 19th centuries, but these were private affairs, not part of the legal system. But if so many clerics, lawyers, rulers and ordinary people had doubts about trial by combat, why did it last so long? Setting aside the matter of simple faith, there were sound secular arguments for leaving the matter to God or to chance. The king was seen as the ultimate court of appeal in the human realm, but use of trial by combat could allow the crown to step away from difficult decisions, particularly those involving nobles or to avoid taking sides in politically dangerous squabbles. Trials by combat also gave a legal framework to contain violence in disputes that might otherwise have spun out of control into blood feuds or vendettas, while the aristocratic duels of chivalry provided ceremonial and a simulacrum of honour as well as a spectacle for a bloodthirsty general populace. And though victory would inevitably go to the stronger combatant, not necessarily the one with truth on his side, a speedy wrong decision was accepted as better for social cohesion than a protracted, inconclusive investigation. It was a matter of preserving peace rather than serving justice. So it's ironic that trial by combat was a mechanism that thrived in a time of relatively weak state apparatus with unsophisticated legal systems and a lack of central authority, 
the exact opposite of what we're meant to believe of Arthur's idealised realm, especially as in Excalibur he boasts that all his subjects have their own portion of happiness and justice, and he's insistent that his laws must bind everyone high and low, otherwise they're not laws at all. Interestingly enough, in the original script for Excalibur, there is a scene where Arthur hears a legal case and delivers a Solomon-like judgment, giving credence to his claim of providing justice for his people, but there's nothing of the kind in the final film. But while trials by combat lack coherence in a properly functioning system of justice, they provide for exciting action, which is no doubt why there's a surfeit of them in La Morte d'Arthur notwithstanding the paucity of them in 15th century reality. And since Mallory wasn't writing a legal treatise, he, and Borman after him, doubtless felt justified in playing fast and loose with the rules which governed the trials in real life. These rules commenced with the basic fact that the necessary challenge for trial by combat could be issued only after legal proceedings were underway. In the case represented in Ridley Scott's The Lost Duel, the allegation of rape had already been tried by a lower court, and only after the King's Court of Appeal had investigated the matter was the duel allowed to proceed. This is in stark contrast to the scene at the round table in Excalibur, where there's no legal action commenced or contemplated and no investigation, no attempt at all by Arthur to look for evidence and resolve the matter without bloodshed. In England, two separate kinds of legal duels evolved the duel of law, which covered civil and criminal matters and was open to everyone, and the duel of chivalry, largely restricted to the nobility and subject to specific criteria first set down in France in 1306. The crime had to be capital, notorious and certain, the accused notoriously suspected, and combat the only means of procuring conviction and punishment. This last rule was echoed in England's Court of Chivalry later in the century under Richard II. The duel could only be allowed when they may not prove their cause by witness nor by no other manner. As a court process, indictments were filed with sworn statements given by both parties to the action setting out the accusations and defence. A late 13th century legal text gave templates to be followed, noting the need for precision in the allegations. Then, before combat began, another oath had to be taken by each man. I have neither eaten nor drunk anything, nor done or caused to be done for me any other thing, whereby the law of God may be abased, and the law of the devil advanced or exalted. That is, they had to swear they had no unholy magical powers which might give them an advantage. Quite apart from the impiety involved, the courts were anxious to ensure parity between the combatants. A 13th century French jurist said that a knight couldn't challenge someone of lesser rank and expect to fight on horseback and in full armour while the other had little or nothing. The two men must, must have equivalents of protection and weaponry. This is ignored in Excalibur, where we see Percival being knighted by Arthur, so he's made of equal status to Gawain, but that's the only equality between them, since Percival wears little more than rags and doesn't even have a saddle for the conveniently waiting horse. This requirement for equality pertained also to duels of law, but while the aristocratic Arthurian duels of chivalry might have an element of pageantry, 
This was lacking among the trials involving common folk, particularly towards the end of the era, when judicial disapprobation reached its height. A judge who allowed one of the last duels in 1455 insisted the parties wear identical clothing and carry identical weapons, but they were to make their foul battle upon the most sorry and wretched green that might be found about the town. And if the weapons broke, as in fact happened, they were to continue with their bare hands for however many hours it took. And in a final humiliation, if they need any drink, they must take their own piss. The nose-biting, eye-gouging brawl that resulted, and which was the reality of the trials Mallory must have seen or known about, was a world away from the duel we see in Excalibur. What is also lacking, both in Mallory and the film, is Arthur taking responsibility for the duel, as was expected of the monarch under the English Code of Chivalry. Although in Excalibur he tells Guinevere he can't be her champion because I am your king and I must be your judge in this, we don't actually see him act as a judge. It was for the king to control judicial combat, and in particular he could end the fight at any point and demand the parties reconcile, and he alone could interpret its outcome. Yet in the film, having been beaten by Lancelot, Gawain pleads for mercy, yells that Guinevere is innocent, and the matter ends there. In real life, an accuser who lost was then likely to be executed for perjury, having lied on oath. Indeed, if the loser was killed in the combat, he might still be dragged from the field and hanged in order to impress upon everybody that he was guilty in law. But to a lawyer, there's something even more important missing from the film than oaths and rules of procedure. Since trial by combat is a judicial exercise, there has to be a claim regarding an aspect of civil law or an allegation of a criminal offence. What actually is there in Excalibur to warrant a legal duel? In the original script, Guinevere is accused by Gawain of the murder of his brother, something which appears in Mallory and certainly provides an excellent reason for trial by combat. However, this was dropped, and in the film there is merely an insinuation of adultery, that Lancelot is driven from the round table by a woman's desire. Not the precise allegation required in real life, or even that given in Mallory, where she's accused of being alone in her bedchamber with a wounded knight, who is actually Lancelot. Though the accuser's failure to name him allows Lancelot to use legal trickery to swear to Guinevere's innocence without actually perjuring himself. Adultery was an offence in England in the Middle Ages, but largely a matter for the ecclesiastical courts where trial by combat wasn't an option. And while a finding of guilt might bring with it punishment and public disgrace, it certainly wasn't a capital crime. Yet on later learning that Guinevere and Lancelot are together, Arthur demands of Merlin, What must I do now? Kill them? That must, showing he's still talking as king and judge, not simply as an angry, cuckolded husband. It's unlikely this is meant to imply that common adultery is punishable by death throughout Arthur's realm, so we need to look deeper for the true accusation against Guinevere and Lancelot, and it's one that was also available in real life in the late Middle Ages. Treason. Until the 14th century, the offence of treason was pretty much whatever the king and his judges said it was. Then 1351 brought in the Treason Act, which remains part of UK law to this day. The first clause, as might be expected, declared it was treason to compass, that is, envisage, 
the death of the king or certain of his family. But the second clause states that it's treason if a man do violate the king companion, in other words, the queen. Violate to us now signifies the crime of rape, but then it included consensual sex, and that's how it seems to be defined in 1536, when the grand jury decided that Anne Boleyn and her supposed lovers were to be sent for trial, where the indictment reads that she procured Henry Norris to violate her, by reason whereof he did so, and they had illicit intercourse, and also that she incited her own natural brother, George Boleyn, to violate her, whereby he violated and carnally knew the said queen. As we all know, Anne and the men were executed, and Blackstone, the 18th century jurist, in his commentary on the Treason Act, spelled it out. By violation is understood carnal knowledge, as well without force as with it, and this is high treason in both parties, if both be consenting, as some of the wives of Henry VIII by fatal experience evinced. The plain intention of this law is to guard the blood royal from any suspicion of bastardy, whereby the succession to the crown might be rendered dubious. And yet, at the time women tended not to be charged with adultery, only the man being held to be at legal fault. Anne and the others certainly died because of the allegations, as did Catherine Howard only a few years later, but in the indictment there's a wealth of accusatory statements which did not remotely approach treason even then. And right at the end there's the accusation, probably equally implausible, that they compassed and imagined the king's death, which alone was needed to justify the sentence Henry required. It would appear that Cromwell wasn't convinced that consensual sex, even incestuous sex, was itself enough to come within the scope of the Treason Act, at least as far as Anne herself was concerned. But is this the threat hanging over Guinevere as Lancelot and Gawain fight? The implicit accusation of treason by adultery, the breach of her allegiance to her husband the king, and with it a mandatory sentence of death. All we can be sure of is that it's Arthur's failing to deal properly with her subsequent adultery, which leads to Merlin being imprisoned, Morgana conceiving Mordred, and the land falling into ruin, because of the loss of the great sword of his fathers, after which the film is rightly named, the Sword of Power, Excalibur, 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 Excalibur. <laughs> This month's 75-word winner was Paranoid Marvin. The theme and genre were waste and science fiction, respectively. And I'm reading Marvin's triumphant entry, entitled A Mission to Savor. We also have the winning 300-word challenge entry from January, which was won by her honour herself, the judge, with her entry, The Shirt on Your Back. A Mission to Savor by Paranoid Marvin a waste of time. What is? Returning to the moon. Why? Well, you know Jeff? Your boss at NASA? That's him. He has a hankering for some lunar cheese. But hasn't it already been established that Earth's only natural satellite isn't comestible? Tried telling Jeff that. Said he wants to make really sure this time. I thought he'd more of a sweet tooth. Why do you think the Mars exploration program got approved? 
The Shirt on Your Back by The Judge Blood is always so damn difficult to clean off. Ditto brains. Unfortunately, my latest wearer had a very, very messy death. Still, at least I didn't get damaged, not even a rat bite afterwards. In the past, I was forever being slashed by a sword or ripped by a dagger, and you wouldn't believe the hours I've spent mending bullet holes recently. Of course, I don't have to clean myself, but being washed just isn't the same these days. In the past, there was a sensuality to it that made my fibres quiver, women at riverbanks beating me against sturdy rocks, the glorious heat of later laundry houses. It's all machines now, sterile and soulless. As for repairs, don't get me started on present-day mending skills. And with communal washing, there was a chance of encountering other ensorcelled clothes. Occasionally, I even met garments created by my own mage and would reminisce. Oh, he was a careless eater. No wonder self-cleaning was always the first power he gave us. Naturally, I've changed myself over the years. I've been shirt, nightshirt, chemise, shift, petticoat, blouse, long, short, a broad cutty sock I was for one comely Scots girl, with sleeves without, collared or not. Ruffles and embroidery have come and gone, but my favourite embellishment remains black work, what I wore for my first murder. Black work, indeed, you might say, but when the drunken bully wearing me beat a child to death, I had to do something. Beguiling wearers is always easy. I simply inveigled the thug into drowning himself. Since then? To be honest, I've lost count of all I've killed. I'm no shirt of Nessus, though. Rather, think of me as Nemesis, punishing those who deserve it. But next time you're wearing a devastatingly exquisite shirt, remember me. Welcome back to Mars Radio 14, the third best radio station in the Martian Space Force. My name is Captain Half Milk Carton, and I'm joined by Lieutenant Bungalow, who has brought a medieval human called Arthur Pendragon back to Mars to... Uh, why are you here? I told you, I forgot my sandwiches, Half Milk Carton. Gadzooks! Am I deceived? Or do I see a giant creature the size of the Kingdom of Wales floating in the sky above us? It is truly a remarkable sight. That it is. That thing is every space captain's best friend. Seantoglobial spire. A multi-limbed space jellyfish that floats on cosmic energy. Can I speak with you? You can try. It wouldn't work, though. A radiation dose from just one of those tentacle barbs is enough to kill, I mean, like a Phlegorian bull, man. <laughs> it absorbs the photonic amplitude from the rotational drive of the large interstellar bulk carriers, and it gives them the smaller interplanetary craft, you know, like the ones in this system. Yeah, 
87% of the Martian Space Force operates using this star system's antiglobial spire. Sal. No, 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 spire. Spire, yeah. It's probably hard for you to understand. I mean, in human terms, it could be described as someone who uh, steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Hey, maybe think of it like a knight who sees someone with plenty and then gives that plenty to someone without plenty. But wouldn't the person without plenty then have plenty? Yes. So, the Untergoblin Spire. Nice. Knight? Yes, yeah, knight. It's a, it's a metaphor. For what? An Antiglobian Spire. Right. Then wouldn't the knight then have to go to the person who had nothing but now has plenty and take that plenty and give it back to the person who had plenty but now has nothing? Yes. So they'd end up right back where they started. Which is exactly why the Antiglope inspires every space captain's best friend. Welcome back. We're here with Brian Wigmore. I'm going to kick off the second half of the conversation by asking, how do you draw on the Arthurian myths for your own work, Brian? Well, Dan, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Good. <laughs> We'd never know how. It's, it's almost <laughs> like we had that question lined up. Um, okay, so I'm writing, I'm currently writing a young adult series. Um, the series title is called Earthworms, and the first book is called The Greenstone Oracle. And in that, it's a, it's a contemporary set um, sort of environmental fantasy. And in that, there's the concept of Arthur returning um, in order to save the land. Um, that's sort of part of Mallory as well. And at the end of Mallory, <laughs> the end of Mar so Mallory, Mallory's text is called La Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur. But in fact, despite that being the title, it's not clear that the death of Arthur actually, ever actually takes place because Mallory at the end says um, he was, someone was buried, but it might have been someone else. And on the tombstone, it says basically Arthur, the king who was and who will be in the future as well. So there's always been this idea of Arthur returning. And I've sort of taken that on as being in an environmental sense that the in that the energy of Arthur, if you like, as a someone around, around whom other people can rally, um, might be used as a kind of um, an environmental sense to help save nature from the forces that are attacking it. So, so tell us a little bit more about earthworms, uh, because this is this is a work in progress, isn't it? It's a work in progress. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. I've I've read the manuscript for the, uh, the first book and the second book. Yeah. So you know, it's yeah. it's 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 well in, on its way to being completed. Sort yeah, I'm of. about to start the fourth book in mm. possibly seven or maybe six. Bean, um, have you have you read the manuscripts for the first? I've read the first two. First what? two, okay. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about about the storyline and how it's drawing on the Arthurian mythos. Well, it it sort of features a. An environmental group who uh, are magically adept, and they're trying to save what I'm calling the land's energy matrix, which is basically the set of sort of ley lines and sacred sites from being corrupted by a group of ne'er do wells who are trying to to attack it in order to sort of deplete the the um, the mood of the population, if you like, to induce a set of despair, a sense of despair, and so that they can sort of take power. And it later turns out they're working for 
um, a supernatural force that, that wants to achieve much the same thing. And the idea of Arthur is brought in at the end of the first book. Um, and it's suggested that certain characters might embody elements of the Arthurian myth in order to uh, provide a, an impetus for the fight against against these, these sort of bad force. Um, and that goes through several ups and downs. Um, I won't say too much more about it at the moment, but uh, the, the, it's it sort of draws on the themes of whether you can, um, to what extent you can adopt you know, prior characters as, as your own energy, if you like, and make use of them or and what that means for your own identity and whether it's a, a good or a bad thing, you know, what the pitfalls of it are going to be and the, and the, the strengths of it are going to be. And to what Oops. extent this, these, these images from previous myth are, are communal forces, if you like, that people can, can adopt. Well, that, that, that's one of the points we mentioned, isn't it, in the first half, that the Arthurian myth works as the, the myth for the nation or the country or the land, be a bit more vague about it. But it also works as the individual. So the individuals, I guess the characters in the Earthworms can pick up the various, the mantle of that myth and yeah. revivify it. Yes. But, but that, yeah, that depends. Sometimes it's not necessarily a good thing or they, they invest too much of their ego in it and that, that then sort of precedes a downfall. So they have mm. to learn to, to cooperate with it, if you like. And, and there are animal sidekicks, sort of, aren't there? Yeah, which um, is a theme that runs through your books. It is, yeah. So in this, in Earthworms, um, once a character does something which is called opening, so it sort of becomes a, has a kind of like a spiritual experience um, with regard to the natural world. They find that they can call on an animal that they can summon, and in the second book, they find that these animals can take them into this like this parallel. Um, existence called the Wormwoods, where where mythical uh, mythical um, characters exist in reality. Um, but these animals uh, they don't talk, unlike the sort of shamanic totems I use in the in my other series that I'm working on, which is the Firestealer series. Well, now Earthworms, I'm getting the sense that that's not spelt like the normal way we'd expect. It isn't. No. Would you like spelled, to Worms is spelt with a Y, as in the dragon. Yes. Okay. So. That's a little clue, isn't it? Hmm. And they, the wormwoods is spelled the same way. That's right, yeah. So yes, okay. dragons and draconic creatures do feature as also. Mm. Okay. So what what are this are there any sort of thematic similarities between this and the fire stealers? Both are very heavily in, in ingrained in, in myth. You know, they have a very strong mythological foundation, it seems to me. Yeah, so what I was doing with the Fire Stealers, uh, of which the first two have been published, um, that also has a kind of ecological or environmental bent, but it's coming at it from a slightly different angle, which is this world where the ideas of the sky god and the earth goddess have been deliberately split apart, if you like, and then made to fight each other. So that's the basis on which the various cultures in the world have been based. And the idea of the whole story is to bring these two together um, for the your health of humanity and, and the, the world in general. And that's not, um, in Earthworms, it's more straight, well, slightly more straightforward battle against forces which wish to degrade nature for their own ends. 
But you're, um, I mean, Dan and I both know you uh, quite well from the, the, the times we've spent together on Chronicles and the meetups. And I know from when I first met you, you know, we have a lot in common with respect to things like interest of uh, Avebury, that area, Silbury Hill, yeah. um, and all that, you know, that's very much, it's not something you write about, but it's very much important in your um, writing that the stuff I've read of uh, the uh, the Goddess Project and the first two Earthworms books, the sense of the land being so obviously having its own personality or its own character rather, but also this ethereal, you know, that feel you get around um, sort of West Kennet, Long Barrow, Avebury, or those sites, those ancient sites and the classical, or Cheesefoot Head, um, that sense of um, place. Yeah. It, it's really You might, might have to explain what Cheesefoot Head is to non-UK <laughs> listeners. Yeah, the word Cheesefoot doesn't sound very attractive, does it? It's, well, <laughs> well, it's it's a condition... 36% of our listeners are from the United States, you know. <laughs> oh, well, Denmark, so... <laughs> <laughs> So they might not know. Um, yeah. Cheese foot is uh, is a condition you get when you eat too much Roquefort. <laughs> so, uh-huh. yeah, uh, it's, it's a specific a form bowl. of gout. Yes, it's a punch bowl at, um, mm. in Hampshire. So it's a natural. Uh, I don't know how it's made, so don't ask me about that. Well, glacial activity, I think. It's glacial activity, and <laughs> um, and it's a really amazing atmospheric place. I went there once with my sister a few Christmases ago. I think it was the twenty eighth, around the twenty eighth, and it would it had been snowing, and it was that time of day where um, you know it's about three four in the afternoon where it was getting dark, and it's such a strange liminal feeling to it. Yeah, and um, and this hair ran across the the white snow and just ran as the first first and only hair I've ever seen went absolutely hell for leather and then a deer and then a pheasant one after the other and it was so you know symbolic it seemed it seemed like oh my god this means something you know yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just informed as well by the sense of the place there is this energy this atmosphere there yeah which I think- it's a, it's a so it's, it's basically a hilltop but looking down into this vast sweeping cauldron of of landscape mm. um and yeah those places just they excite a kind of sense yeah the sense of meaning i suppose you want their you want them to mean something you, yeah you, yeah I know, it's, it, it's, do, do these sorts of places do they live on the the, the ley lines and those sorts of well, the, what, what are taken to be networks of energy oh yeah the, the concept of ley lines has been a bit changed since yeah Alfred Watkins first came up with it. He came up with this this idea that there were um, straight lines linking old sites of churches and so on that, that meant that uh, marked ancient trackways. Um, and in the probably in the seventies, I suppose people got hold of the idea that they actually were lines of psychic energy. And that's the that's what I've used in Earthworms. I've, I've gone with that kind of. But you don't name idea. them to you don't like the St Michael's Mount. You know that one. It's mm. not. It's the St Michael's Ley Line. You don't name it that, do you? I don't. I haven't haven't done anything with the St Michael's Line in no. Earthworms, no. Um, but I've, I've got various ancient sites. Like there's a uh, Devil's Jumps features in two of the books, which is a, a site of a line of five barrows on the South Downs, quite near here. Though I 
cheekily transplanted it to Oxfordshire. And there are various um, sites like the White Horse, Wayland Smithy and so on that, that yeah, I've used I directly. Those. And there's others that I've made up. Um, yeah, a lot of that is drawing on. I mean, I still have a, a feeling for those places. But when I was in my 20s, um, I get I got very caught up with those ideas and they made a strong impression on me. Well, there was that book. Was it the Black Magician and the and the sort of the Black Alchemist? The Black, Black Alchemist. Alchemist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These were um, so these were books uh, written by someone called Andrew Collins, and his big thing was what he called psychic questing, where you could uh, you could um, sort of attune yourself to it's sort of like a kind of clairvoyance where you would um, uncover. The answers to various mysteries about the landscape or, or things that were going on or or where people were black magicians were um uh, sort of doing things they ought not to be doing and disrupting the uh you know the, the earth energies and that's the kind of idea i've basically stolen for the earthworm stories well it was it was also it's your love i mean when i first met you, you were talking about your the big sussex novel which never yeah. knows a very tightly kept secret and very legendary. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the one thing I'm sort of hoping doesn't get subsumed into your other writing or the one day it becomes something you write separately. Possibly, although that, that, that was the big Sussex novel or Black Magic on the Sussex Downs, as I call it, was a spin-off from my first novel, which I've recently had another look at and might well end up finishing at some point. Is this Red Silence Green Song? No, that's in between, actually. This is something, this is actually something that was set in Sussex um, and again features uh, sort of earth energies to some extent, but it also merges it with um, ideas about Atlantis and the Old Testament view of God and the fairies, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Whether anything will come of it, I'm not sure, but um, I'm hoping that eventually something might. Well, surely something's going to happen with respect to the Mandala Praxis. So perhaps you could give, because the Fire Stealers is, I hope, well, I hope you're not going to do a Robert Jordan on us, is, is what we're going. What I'm going to say. And I've mentioned this before, and everybody's eagerly waiting it, because you've built up a loyal following, mm. and the Fire Stealers is a great series. And the Mandala Praxis, which is book three in the series, is you're keeping us on tenterhooks. So it's overdue. How yes. can you give can you give us a progress report on how the Mandala okay, Praxis? Okay, I have is about um, eleven chapters written, uh, so it's between a third and a quarter of the book. I have it all plotted out, but I'm not quite happy with the ending I have for it. I think it, I think it works in a logical sense, but it doesn't quite have enough oomph. And every now and then I'll go back to it and try and hope that the inspiration will come to me for what needs to happen to really um, to inspire me to, to 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 basically write the whole thing. But what are your your writing processes like? Perhaps yeah, we could go into incorrect. that because yeah, Sorry, because it, but people have different ways of approaching writing. One of the things that we've we've had lots of authors on. We've had you know agents. Uh, publishers and so people have had different ways of looking at the whole, the whole, the whole thing, the whole kit and the caboodle from the craft aspect to the industrial practices and everything else. And it becomes more and more apparent to me 
as we talk to lots of different people, that there's no one correct answer. I mean, you can you can yeah. maybe pick out the commonalities across, let's say, case studies. So everybody's got their case study, what worked or works for them. But it's not necessarily going to work for everybody, but you can pick out certain common elements and you can maybe work your way towards achieving that. So, you know, tell us about how it works for you and maybe about the, the publishing route as well. I mean, you and I had a very similar experience. Yeah. Oh, well, so there's that classic division between um, planners and pantsers in terms of how, how you approach a novel. Uh, and I think really most people fall somewhere between the two. So a planner I'm, being, well, someone planner, obviously, planner and a pantser being will, somebody who writes by the seat of their pants, basically discovering as they go. Yeah. I need to know where I'm going to some extent, um, or I need to have something to aim for, even if it's, even if I suspect it's something that will change by the time I get there. And what I tend to do, um, what I did for the first two Final Steelers books specifically, is I had a series of, of waypoints, if you like, throughout the, the story, and I would work my way from one to another. But continually updating my plans as I went on to take account of what i just written. So if I wrote something that didn't quite fit with, with what I planned, I'd, I'd let it lie because usually it would it would suit the characters that I were writing about. Um, but I'd then have to rework my plans onwards, which could, you know, be quite an involved process. There's this, this um, yeah, just a continually updating, really. Um and does that take a what? Does that add on uh, more to say? Because you see, I always thought you were a strict potter, and I thought that you one of the delays was because you weren't happy with the plot, and you like everything, you know, A B C D. This is how I'm going. I didn't realize that you were then having to retcon or you know tri- uh, tinker with stuff you'd already re- written. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think I'm more of a plotter than I am in that I can set out a plot and it would seem to me to be fairly to cover everything, and then I'll realise as I write that in fact it um, it you know covered only twenty five percent of everything. Yeah. So um, there were, and there were large gaps missing. I I sort of made assumptions about what things um, what things meant or how they were going to work, um, and I then have to to fill in the gaps, and that would then change the plans again. Writing the third book in a series as well is quite um, difficult because you're having to fit it in, obviously, with everything that's already happened, which hasn't really been a problem. Um, what's, what's been a, a challenge for the third book is trying to make sure that all the characters I've built up over the first two books have enough to do. That, that um, yeah, that I don't want to just there's a balance. involved in just busy work. They have to yeah. contribute to yeah. the ending of the entire story. I can't just leave them out, and it's it's that that's been the challenge really, and the climax of the third the third book really needs to be bigger than the climax of the of the first or the second. It needs to climax the entire the entire series as well as the, the third book, and it's is is the the third book is the last in the series, or is it this the th- well? I'm, I'm, talking, I'm thinking of it as the third book. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be able to come in as one book. It's possible, I suppose, that it might need to be split into two like the last film of any decent sized series these days because <laughs> well when it when it's made into a movie they'll split it into two anyway so maybe you should just make it yeah, one book exactly. what, what, but it, no, well it starts before. off as seven books didn't it yeah oh that was the idea well it was yeah the original um the original idea was based around 
seven locations so it made sense to have seven books but i fairly quickly realized that that wasn't going to work it was just going to be too much um it wasn't necessary really it, it would make much more sense to have the story um happen in a more uh you know in a shorter frame and also in fact the seven the seven locations it was based on in the end i decided not to really use that scheme so it's, it's kind of like a grandiose scheme i came up with early on and then decided to abandon I mean, as I said, the, the plan for the earthworms is for seven as well, and that's based on seven objects, which is easy to adhere to. Uh, but I might I might have two of those objects occur in the same book. And also, I mean, but they're a lot shorter and, and simpler than the fire stealers ones. And how, what, 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 you know, when you started the fire stealers, did you have earthworms as an idea already coalescing or did it come as part of the writing of fire stealer like how i'm 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 thinking about when you finished earthworms you know have you got okay and then this is going to be my next big project or is it going to be we'll see what happens no earthworms came about completely independently of the fire stealers um this was back in early 2018 um, and I was browsing in Mortarstones and I saw all these nonsense products which were spin off of Harry Potter, uh, sort of basically trying to get uh, teenagers involved in actual actual magic. So they were <laughs> they're basically magic sets for teenagers, but Harry Potter based. And it occurred to me that um, if Harry Potter had been given that given that the Harry Potter series had had caused so much interest in things like magic if it had been about the environment instead would it have generated as much interest in the environment as it had in magic so yeah. spin off um so i thought well maybe it would maybe it wouldn't but is then you know what is there is, are there any books like that around that are trying to do that no should i have a go at writing on myself so i thought well you know why not see what happens um, I think I mean, well, if the, if the bones of the story, but the Harry Potter, the magic is almost incidental. Although you know, you could say that children, are, are, you know, we said children are kind of divine in a strange sense because there's, you know, they they sort of have everything about them. They're all potential. They could become anything. Um, so there is that sense that children are magical, and then that makes the basis of the story. But the bones of it, of it, you know, being the the chosen one story which is the same as you know luke skywalker or or king arthur or or christ mm. or whatever you know whatever it is if the bones of the story are the same then i don't think it matters about you know this certain you know the, the cosmetic stuff that becomes the stuff that you see on the shop shelves but isn't there a political element for you brian in that anyway because of your care for the environment your investment well i mean yeah it would be fantastic if i was enabled to if i was able to inspire any activism if you like in that in that in that direction and i i think i seem to remember at the time that it was just after the um apartment school shootings in florida and there was a lot of um <coughs> exposure of the the teenage activists gun control activists that had come out of that and so I, I think that was in my mind as well um but what actually inspired the story really was um something that was happening quite hit quite close to here where there's a place quite close to here where I walk and a property company had bought up the farm on the other side of the road and they just bulldozed this, this row of hedges 
Um, and it turned out for no reason because they didn't, they didn't even need to use the land that the, the hedges were on. They, they'd sort of done it in order to say they could turn their vehicles, but it turned out that they could do something oh, wow. else with them instead. And I developed this fantasy in my head of being able to magically make those vehicles break down or even <laughs> burst into flames. <laughs> Being driven when they crossed a particular line, and no one would be well, no one would know it was me that had done this. (laughs) (laughs) And I had this whole scenario play out in my head where they just kept driving up more vehicles to tow away the vehicles that broken down. Those would break break down as well, and they get really frustrated. And I'd be in the background, like twirling my moustache and laughing, rubbing your hands. So essentially, you had a fantasy about littering the countryside with loads of JCBs. I'm afraid so, yeah. But in the end, they'd be covered with a huge mound of earth like Silbury Hill, and then everyone would be happy. Oh, okay, fair enough. But then, you, then you're opening yourself up for a horror story about these zombie JCBs coming out of the earth to wreak revenge on or the, the mound, the Marble Arch, because that's what it sounds like. <laughs> the the oh, yeah. Marble Arch Mound. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if if it inspires other people to to write stories about zombie JCBs, then you know. I'll count that There's out. definitely a straight-to-video film to be made there. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, and I'll insist it's issued only on VHS. Absolutely. Is that because Blu-ray? No, surely um, streaming services would have less of an environmental impact. Oh, probably. Oh, yeah. Chris, you've revealed. Depends the on how big the server is. Depends on how big the server farm is. Yes, but it might be used for data mining as well at the same time. You don't know. See, there, there's no right answer to these things. No, there's no right answer to anything. Brian, look what you've done, done Brian. You're going to have to come up with again. A proper, a proper uh, ending to this. What to this conversation? Well, eventually, but I'm, I'm thinking more <laughs> about your creative output with uh, Earthworm Seven Books. Yes. Oh, that, no. That okay. They're, they're going at full speed. I'm, I'm quite, uh, quite happy with the, with how they're going. And what about, I mean, I suppose we should mention that some of these are going to, you know, do you have a publishing model idea for them? Or, if, you know, what, what somebody might be thinking, right, where can I get hold of these? And they're not your uh, friends, so they can't read them. Yeah, I don't have a publishing strategy at the moment. I'm hoping that fairly soon. See, when I started them, I thought that, you know, young adult environmental fantasy would be a big thing pretty soon. I It seems a no-brainer to me. But it hasn't happened in the five years since. Yeah. Um, and as a, a pretty much an unknown author, I think my best strategy would be to wait and see if anyone else publishes something fairly similar or starts the genre off, if you like. I don't... There's the danger of that being a rather long wait. Yes, possibly. Um, but I think as long as I'm still working on the series, I'm happy-ish to do that because at least it will mean then that I'll have the whole thing finished um, when it when it uh, when that happens. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my eye out, so it might happen. It might happen soon, in which case I'll get going. But. Um, well, apparently we're, we're quite big in Denmark. If we were big in Sweden, we might be able to get <laughs> Greta Thunberg to uh, the guest on the podcast, and then and then oh, you goodness. could uh, pitch to her. Yeah, well, she yeah, definitely, she definitely loved that. Just, just don't tell her about the JCBs you've dumped all over the country. <laughs> 
I mean, it, it's someone, someone, I, uh, one of my more enthusiastic teenage readers suggested that uh, it's time might not be quite yet because um, young adults are, are sort of overloaded with with um, crises at the moment, mm. and, with doom and gloom. Yeah, but, I mean, if even, you, even, it's, even a story that ends with a has a happy ending at the end, which which incorporates the environmental crisis, might be shunned, as it were, in favour of escapism. I'm not sure how much, how much, you know, how true that is. But I, I tend to think that stories with, if it's grounded in mythology, and we've already established that it is, then it it's it can be again the the environmental stuff. Even though it's an essential part of the storyline, the story can also exist outside of that and exist as a story in and of itself, which it probably does because it's drawing on very ancient modes and themes in storytelling but brian wants I, to pitch it to young adult audiences so therefore the content is I, I would suspect a bit more you have to be a bit more canny with how you handle it you know with it because it's it's a particular demographic he's pitching it to or he wants to read it so it's not more not really about the the overarching sort of archetype of the story and but actually the theme of the story it does but um i would you know i would counter that and say well look at harry potter or look at um, his dark materials as well you know that the these are based on very ancient stories and very ancient structures and they're they're the books that have got the most resonance with young readers and with adults as well and we, we, when we had Tade on last month, he was saying how much he loves his dark materials, and we both do as well. And, you know, Harry Potter, the structures of that are, are ancient, very, very ancient. So I, I personally, I think Earthworms is, is, it will be onto a winner as long as you can get somebody, somebody, you know, who has the foresight to say yes, because it's grounded in those ancient stories. It has contemporary relevance. But the, the point of the Arthurian myth, or one of the points of the Arthurian myth, is that the land is always in crisis and you're always yeah. waiting for Arthur to return. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that, that there may be a, a specific crisis that is newsworthy in this specific point in time. Because the land is always in need of revivification. It's always, it, it needs the next generation to revivify it because the old order has become corrupted or complacent or decadent or a combination of the above. That's always the story. It's always the story. And so it takes that, the chosen one, to upend the order, but in the right way, not to become a corrupt version, not a, 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 a facsimile of yeah. what's come before but to make the old order see uh, see right you know so so luke skywalker doesn't kill his dad he makes him see that he was blind all of the all the time um, yeah etc etc so arthur is he he says at the at the end of the film i didn't realize my soul was so empty until it was filled up yeah by the truth of the grail so it's the same thing i think if you're you're basing your story on something that is very ancient and it's obviously been given slight, you know, it's been given a proper plot, let's say, not like the Arthurian opera plot, then I, I don't, I don't think you should, you should limit it to its topic, to the topical nature of the story. 
I think there's more, there's much more to it than that. And you, you know, you're you're a clever writer and you're a brilliant writer. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> there is a topical element to it, but there's much more going on underneath. It's you know, it's like all great books. They're like icebergs. You can see a bit on the top, but if you want to, you can dig down and you can just keep on digging and keep on digging. And you'll mine truth after truth, and you'll find there's a load of complexity there, and that's where the richness is. Because people want that, even if they don't know they want a book with deep thematic resonance, they do. You know, that's what they want because all books essentially are are retellings of old stories in some in some way. Yours is a bit more explicit in that. I think it's got. I I wouldn't have said that it's got uh, any more or less chance of being published by trying to make it. Uh, resonate with what's in the news yeah um hmm. well, i don't um, think that's the point yes. though i th- sorry brian can i just tell you about your book so you carry on well no i was just gonna say like i know let us that- educate you about yeah. your books. <laughs> well, i think what you're trying to do brian <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know is to uh get some kind of um banner for these uh, for young people to actually take an interest in the environment uh, as the people who are going to be able to I'm not saying that's your mo you know your 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 mandate but you know from conversations we've had I think that is such an important part of earthworms whether it's it's its genesis or what you or its legacy um that to say yeah I mean what well, everything Dan's just said about themes and stuff is fine but i don't think young adults think like that when they pick up a book i think they think about something that's interesting to them and i think that no, yeah. I, I agree I they don't think about important. it i think that's why it's important for them to for brian or well if this is where you're doing your pitching if you're pitching is if it's going to come up and become become a thing for teenagers soon or whenever then that is when you release it not just throwing it at the worst not the worst time but at, at any time into the market I think I think it does it does need to yeah I do need to pick the right time. Um, I mean part of what it, part of its inspiration was uh, something I heard from I know some people who work in in nature conservation charities for example and they'd say that it's it's quite easy to get younger kids interested in nature but you you tend to always lose them at uh, in the teenage years and so I wondered if it was possible I I I don't think I could really write for younger kids but. I wondered if it was possible to to try and write something that might recapture them, but with with um, with the kind of story that that you know has relationships and and you know interpersonal mm. stuff and uh, and is fast paced and so on. Um, but I think it does rather than just throw it at the publishing industry. It probably does need a bit more care in its timing um, because we know that. You know what publishing really likes is something that's like something that's already been successful with a bit of a twist. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, the next time we have an agent or a publisher on the podcast, that's a good question. So we'll, we'll put a pin in that one. Yeah, actually, I'm interested to know what they think of that that, of that mm. perception because I know quite a few people share it. Uh, it seems to be borne out by what's actually published, but um, is it actually true? Hmm. Well, do you want to follow the trend or do you want to be the trend? But it's very difficult to be the trend, isn't it? If you someone has got to be. Well, yeah, but it's if you it would be easier if you're someone with already with an established following. Although maybe it's not because people, because publishers don't like people to go off away from their current brand. 
Yeah, I mean that that all. What it would be easier. What it would be easier is, is if I was a celebrity. Well, why don't you <laughs> work, work on that then? Become an actor, and then I, I I wonder I wonder if anyone's actually gone for a particular way of becoming famous as a means of then getting something published. It's it's less work than writing a book, isn't it? Well, what about all those? You have to write a book as well. Well, well oh, but yeah, but the by, but by the point you become famous, you get somebody else to write it for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe I should do I that. You've, I think you struck on something there. You're probably not the first person to strike on it, but it's an epiphany. All has become clear. Assassination. That seems quite easy. <laughs> no. There was silence in the land. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it's my mic. No. Are you there, Dan? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Because sometimes one of us hangs. Right, we'll edit that bit out. <clears throat> okay. And that bit. <laughs> um, okay, so it's fine. We can edit all this out. It all comes out in the wash. Is there anything else you want to talk about? In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll put that back in. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Brian, before we wrap up the episode? I don't think so. Okay, well, know. shall we ask the, the usual questions, mm-hmm. Bean? What? So they are... What are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a young adult book called Corbinick by Catherine Fisher, which is a modern sort of retelling, actually, of the Fisher King story. Huh. Very good. And oh, so which which aspect of it? So the the one that you related about him going to the banquet. Yeah. So it, it's um, is it a new book? In- Sorry, is it? Sorry, I didn't hear. Did you say this was a new book? No, no, it's published in two thousand two, and I've actually read it before. But um, it well, two things actually put me in mind of it. One was the the whole Excalibur thing, but also I remember that its main character has the same first name Cal as the character of the my first novel that I've recently had another look at. Oh no, Cal is the name of the main character in the novel I'm writing at the moment as well. Is it? That's spooky. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's basically he's um. Uh, late boy in his late teens who in North Wales who leaves his mother because she's too much work and you know she she's um she gets she has she's an alcoholic with regular psychotic episodes and he goes to stay with his uncle but en route he has a bit of a weird episode where he gets off at the wrong train station and finds himself in this in the castle hotel which is basically an analogue of the Fisher King's castle and he fails to ask the question about what's going on and he ends up at the stage I'm at at the moment he ends up with his uncle and he's um weird things are happening to him it's uh I, I like Catherine Fisher I've read a few of her books over the years it's uh, very well written oh that um, sounds very cool actually yeah and the second question is what book would you recommend as a required reading for our listeners Ridley Walker is that not an author or a book name Oh, it's a book name. Um, this doesn't have to be Arthurian related. No, no, any- no, no. Yeah, anything. Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban is an absolutely fantastic book. It's um, set in a it's a post apocalyptic book set in Kent, and it's written in the first person by a young man who's had, is a kind of like a shaman for his people. Um, 
and it's written in a in a kind of like debased version of English, which nonetheless is very poetic because it sort of combines some words and changes the meanings of others, and it's got its whole its own whole mythology. Um, it's it's a it's unique and a tour de force, and not everyone would get on with it. Um, in fact, possibly the majority of readers who try it. Might okay, not well, you're it. probably not selling this required. It's reason. brilliant. It is brilliant. <laughs> it is. It is as brilliant and idiosyncratic as Nicole Williams's performance as Merlin. Well, okay. Well, when when I well, that's all very well, you know, well and good, <laughs> but. When I was, uh, I, I guested on a, another podcast and I was asked uh, what's required reading, I said the Goddess Project. So, you know, when you do oh, these God, podcasts, you find them, out yeah, who your I? friends are, don't you? Oh, yeah. Terrible. Don't you mean Man of War? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it. Ridley, War, Ridley Walker. Yes, it's the war that I was going for there, Man of War. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 gone. The moment's gone. Oh, that's all. And... I think so is the episode. There goes the episode. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really, really You're wonderful. welcome. It's been far more enjoyable than I expected. It's nice to see Unless, you as well. It's been ages uh, since we've, we've yeah. met. So. Yeah, because we we, um, we meet quite, well, we used to meet quite frequently, and uh, it's been less frequent the last couple of years, so we'll, we'll have to rectify that and make sure we can see you properly in the future. Yeah, no, that'd, be, that'd be good. Okay, thanks again. Bye. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. This episode of Cronscast was brought to you by Dan Jones and Christopher Bean, with our special guest, Brian Wigmore. Additional content was provided by Damaris Brown, Brian Sexton, Jay Starlipper, and Paranoid Marvin. Special thanks to Brian Turner and the staff at Crons, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, and join the world's largest science fiction and fantasy community for free at sfchronicles.com. Join us next month when our guest will be the author Toby Frost and we'll discuss Mervyn Peake's seminal work, the first book of the Gormenghast trilogy, Titus Grove.